0: So this last Tuesday, um, we have our staff meetings here on Tuesday. We had a really fun one because all of the guys who went to Africa were back and were sharing some of the stories with us. And Chris had this really interesting experience that I'd love to share with you. What happened is they were in, it's crazy impoverished in Kenya. They're in Kenya, crazy amount of poverty. And the guys are looking at this woman. She's on the side of the interstate and there's this little trench that's got just a little bit of water in it. it's like foul water and she's down there scrubbing her clothes trying to get her clothes clean in this water and Chris is looking at her and he just honestly feels like God was pressing on his heart I got to give this woman some money like I can really help this woman it wouldn't hurt me at all it will greatly benefit her I, I have to do this so he gets up and he walks up to her and he goes hey um you don't know me my name is Chris, and uh, I just feel like God is telling me to, to give this to you. And he reaches his hand out. And Chris has got tattoos on his hand. And oh, is right. That's uh oh there. And she goes, Get away from me. And he goes, No, you, you don't understand. I, I'm not asking for anything. Uh, I just I want to help you. I just feel like the Lord's telling me to give you this. And she goes, I don't want it. I, see, I'm a Jesus follower, I, I'm a Christian. And Christians don't look like you. Christians don't have that. And Chris goes, well, I am a Jesus follower too. And I've been talking to him. And she goes, I've been talking to Jesus and I've been asking him to send me someone to help me. And he goes, yeah, here I am. Take the money. (laughs) And she got in his face and goes, you can't be a Jesus follower. And he goes, actually, I'm a pastor. And then there was no conversation. She was just Not happy with it, not going to have it. And Chris was just like, what was that? But we all can kind of do that where we have this idea of the qualifications or the characteristics that a person must have in order to be used by God to a certain capacity, maybe in leadership or in ministry or just every day a guy walking on the side of the road. What is like the bare minimum standard in order for God to use someone? And that's what we see today in Exodus chapter four, this conversation where God has chosen someone. We've been following this guy's life and God's divine plan for Moses. And in chapter three, God introduces himself to Moses. Our conversation picks up halfway through their conversation. So we have to look at a little bit of chapter three to get an idea of what's going on. But Moses really doesn't even wanna be used. Moses is trying to get out of this plan of God's any way he can. So he has five objections to the Lord. The first two are seen in chapter three. The first one is he says, but who am I? He goes, Moses is looking at the Lord. So here's what happens. Moses is just enjoying his life. 80 year old man. He's got sheep. He's not expecting much more out of life. And all of a sudden, a bush bursts into flame and he goes, that's strange. I should go check that out. And when he goes over there, God starts talking to him. And in this conversation, he goes, you are going to go back to Israel and you are going to lead them out of Egypt. His first objection is, who am I? I'm just a shepherd. I'm not, I have no status. I've got no power. I'm completely unimportant. You've got the wrong dude. But God responds to him and says, yeah, but I'll be with you. And then the second objection is he goes, but what if I go to them Who am I supposed to say you are? Like, what's your name? Who are you? It's essentially a question of, can I trust you? Are you going to abandon me? Is this just a weird experience, one and done? And here's what the Lord says. He says, I am that I am. So Aristotle was a philosopher, and he had this idea when he was looking at the world and how things functioned, is that everything that is in effect, everything that's being moved, must have been caused by a mover. But if you keep going back, what caused this? Well, then what caused this? And what caused this? Eventually, he came to a conclusion that there must be an unmovable mover. There's something or someone that is outside of creation that set all of creation into being. But with Aristotle's idea is this deity, this entity, it created everything. It set everything into motion that is, but this Deity entity, this unmoved mover is completely disinterested in humans. Either he's disinterested and doesn't care, or he's incapable. He doesn't get involved in the lives of humans because he can't. But the way that Yahweh introduces himself to Moses, he says, I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Our God introduces himself to Moses, saying, I am personally invested in these people's lives and I delight. In being known as their personal God. I am their God, they are my people. And he calls himself, I am that I am. He is the one who's always been. He's the one who's outside of creation, who's always existed like the unmoved mover, but very unlike the unmoved mover, in that he is interested in getting involved in the lives of people. And that's why when Jesus said, he compares himself to the I am in the book of John, the Phil the not the Philistines, the Pharisees, wanted to put Jesus to death for blasphemy, comparing himself to the God who always was, who is, and who will always be. So that's the God that we get introduced to. And so starting in Exodus chapter four, our conversation continues with Moses talking to Yahweh. So he's had objection one, which is who am I? Objection two, which is who are you? And this is his third one in verse one of Exodus chapter four. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So his third objection is when I left there, I was a wanted man. I'm a criminal. I murdered someone. And now I've been gone for 40 years and I just show up one day and I go, Oh, Hey, God showed up to me. They're not going to believe me. So his first, his third objection is he's insecure. He doesn't believe he has any ability to compel belief. And I love God's response because it essentially sums up to, yeah, but it's not about you. So here's what the Lord says. The Lord, Yahweh, said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. So I I like to picture that. So here, here's what happens. He's, But God, you've got the wrong guy. And God goes, what's that in your hand? And he goes, it? it's a staff. He goes, throw it on the ground. He okay, throws it on the ground. Throws it on the ground, and then just chaos ensues. You know, he's terrified of what he's just seen, that the staff that he has been holding for probably a long time, throws it on the ground, it becomes a full-on snake, and Moses runs in fear. How human is Moses being portrayed right now? He's not some super courageous guy that God's like, you know, I could put this guy in a really tough situation. He's going to be brave. No way. He shows himself right now. God says, throw it on the ground. Okay. Ah, he gets freaked out. I just think it's so funny. The verses four through nine. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. It doesn't say how long it took him to do that, by the way. (laughs) So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. First decided I was going to get into full-time ministry. There was an opportunity for me at a church in San Diego called Horizon. So I get on staff there and I'm working there and their previous elementary school teacher went back to college. And so they just saw me and they were like, "Hey, you need to teach the elementary school tonight. You're going to be the elementary school teacher." And I was like, "Okay, that that sure, I can make that happen." I didn't get to observe anybody. I didn't get to see how it was done. I had my guitar, I had my Bible, and my friend Taylor, who had also never been in the kids wing before, and they just put us in this room, and now there's 50 kids just looking at me. They don't know me. And the thing that you need to know if you're interested in serving with kids is children have an acute ability to smell fear like sharks can smell blood from a mile away. So I'm sitting up there, and I go to do Bible study with elementary schoolers. And if I were to summarize what happened that evening, I would say it didn't go well. I just put it real tight. So I, I found it real quick. I gotta do something. I gotta get a, a voice in these kids' lives. So I started talking to my uncle. I'm like, what can I do? He goes, here's what will blow their mind. I go, okay. So I get an orange, right? And I take the stem off the top of the orange and I get a screwdriver and I hollow out the middle of the orange. And then I get a, a playing card and I wrap it up real tight and I shove it in the orange and then I super glue the top. Of the stem back on that orange looks like a perfectly good orange. Well, then I pull out a deck of cards. The next time the kids come in, I go, "Oh!" Before we repeat what happened last week, let me show you this. I pull out a card. It just happens to be the same one I made disappear. And I go, "What if I can make this show up in that?" And okay. So then I go, and oh, someone should open that. They open it up, and it's in the guess who had their attention? I got some credibility, right? <laughs> But here's the thing with what happens here. Yahweh didn't teach Moses some secret magic. I would love nothing more than be able to do some of this stuff for the kids wing. I would have credibility. But the thing is, is Moses, God didn't give him some secret power that now Moses can do this whenever he wants. Moses doesn't go home to Gershom and he's like, hey, check this out. What he does though is God is demonstrating his own power through Moses. God is saying, okay, you're insecure about your inability to compel belief. I can compel belief through you. And he gives him signs in order to do that. The first one is the staff that turns into a snake and then back to his staff. That's something lifeless, has life now, and then doesn't have life anymore. That's not something small. That's not insignificant. And then the hand that's leprous and then not leprous anymore. God has the ability to take something completely ordinary and make it extraordinary. God has the ability cure disease. He's got power over disease. And then finally with the Nile, the Egyptians, when they would look at the Nile, it was the, it, it's the picture of life. This gives them life. This sustains their life out in the desert. Without it, there's no life. God has Moses not right here, but when he's by the Nile, he'll take some water, throw it on the ground, and it will become blood. God is in control of life. God has power over life. So God right here is demonstrating, I've got power over everything through Moses. So here's what happens next. Verse 10. This is um, objection number four. But Moses said to Yahweh, "Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So didn't Yahweh just demonstrate that he's got power over everything? But he goes, okay. Notice the phrasing. He goes, I got this problem. I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. We've been here the entire time. You see the speech problem I have. If you're powerful over everything, you haven't fixed this thing yet. Obviously, God, I have a problem. You you haven't fixed it. So you need to find someone who doesn't have this problem. Moses really does not want this job. It really does a good job of painting us a picture of Moses who's not a power-hungry leader. He actually desperately does not want this position. And so here's what happens. Here's God's amazing, brilliant response. Then Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Jesus, Yahweh will answer questions. He will reveal himself in signs. But there's one thing that happens here that Yahweh doesn't take, at least with Moses. He doesn't take no. And this is the fifth objection. It's Moses just saying no. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. That doesn't go well. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I know with me in my family, if my mom or dad comes to me and says, hey, here's this problem, you need to do something about it. And I go, okay, look, I'm really busy. Maybe I can get to it next week or tomorrow. If either one of them goes, you know what? I'll just call Tyler, your younger brother. I bet you he could handle it well, hold on, I'm not saying I can't handle it, I'm just saying I had to reprioritize, I can do it right now, right? So God, Moses goes, look, just get someone else, And and God goes, okay, Aaron, your younger brother. It's just interesting, no one likes that. No one likes to be undercut by their younger brother, but that's what happens here. So the conversation ends with this guy Moses, that we've been following, that there's been this divine plan with him. What's interesting is in Exodus chapter 2, Moses had decided that his timing was 40 years earlier. That Moses, he's out seeing his people, and an Egyptian is treating the Israelites not very well. Moses waits for an opportunity looks this way, looks that way, doesn't see anyone, and kills the Egyptian. He's, he's going, this is God's time right now. He's going to force God to move right now. And that's not the timing that God had for him. And here's, here's why I think that is. If right then God did start his plan to liberate people, Moses could say, well, it was because of my ability to see a situation and, dis- and Choose a course of action. It was because of my education. It was because of my status, my ability to administrate. It's because of who I am and all of my achievements that I was able to liberate God's people. Right here, though, the picture that Moses is even painting of himself is, look, I don't want it. I'm incapable. I'm insecure. I'm the wrong guy. You don't, you don't want me. Please don't choose me. Anyone else but me. It's, it's interesting because this seems to be a trend that the Lord does. So like later in the book of Judges, there's this guy named Gideon. And there's a lot of similarities to what happens here and with Gideon. One of them is um, Gideon is in the middle of Israel when they're under attack by the Midianites. And the Midianites would keep coming in and stealing food from the Israelites while they're even threshing wheat. They're preparing to get their food ready. The Midianites would come and steal it. The way you thresh wheat is you take all of the wheat that you harvest, but in the midst of that wheat would be chaff which is not good for eating, but it weighs less than wheat. So you would go out on the threshing floor is what they call it, on a windy place, throw it up in the air. The wind should blow the chaff away and what would come down is edible wheat. So you should do that somewhere with wind. Well, when we get introduced to Gideon, he's doing it in a wine press, which is a pit in the ground where there's not a lot of wind because he can hide from the Midianites there. He's afraid of the Midianites. And I don't know if this is fair to say of Gideon. I'll give you that but I teach it to kids this way because it's really fun. We learn two things about Gideon right off the bat. He's a scaredy cat, he's not very smart. Those are the two things. He's hiding and he's trying to thresh wheat in a place with no wind. So everything comes up and everything comes down. A lot of work, but here's what's interesting. Yahweh shows up to him and goes, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon looks at him and goes, no, you got the wrong guy. And he argues with the Lord. In fact, his thing is doubt. He goes, Yahweh, if you're really with us, where are all your promises for us? Where are all your good things? I, I, I really can't believe that, that you are with us right now. And then finally, he says, okay, there's Israel. My family comes from the smallest tribe in all of Israel. And my family is the least important family in that smallest tribe. And I am the youngest brother in that smallest family in the least important tribe. He's saying socially and politically, no one thinks about me. No one comes to me for my opinion on anything. I am not important. But when God comes up to Gideon, he goes, you're a mighty man of valor. You're the guy I've chosen. And here's what's awesome that the Lord does. 30,000 people get together to join Gideon to fight hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And God looks at 30,000 people and Gideon and all those Midianites and God goes, I don't like those odds. And Gideon's like, yes, yes. I don't like these odds either. I'm so happy you said that. And he goes, we're going to send the majority of these guys home. Oh, it's not what I was thinking. I don't know if I would, oh. And what happens is 300 men and Gideon go and face hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And at the end, once God gave the victory to Gideon and he came home, who do you think the Israelites gave glory to? Yahweh. They're not giving glory to the dude who went with 300 people that this nobody, this insignificant guy who's got no no experience in the military whatsoever, they would go, God was with this dude. God chooses Moses at a time in his life when he's going to be this feeble old man who doesn't talk very well, who's got no status, he's got a bad reputation, and when he does lead God's people out, people would have to say, yeah, that was God doing something. Here's what happens next. Moses returns to Egypt. Verses 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And Yahweh said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. He gives him a little bit more comfort. You were a wanted man before, those people are gone. They're not seeking your life anymore. I think Moses still really doesn't want to go. And God's just given a little more prodding. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Even if it's reluctant, Moses is still doing what God told him to do. Even if it's the bare minimum, he took the staff. God said, don't forget it. And Yahweh said to Moses... When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So let's take stock of everything that's happened so far. Moses is the dude, right? From his birth, God has prepared him. God, when he was going to be killed, made it a way so that Pharaoh's own daughter would take him out of the water, raise him in Pharaoh's household, get him the best education. He'd be raised really with the best opportunities and privilege available. And then he becomes a wanted man. God provides an opportunity for Mount Midian for 40 years. Then God shows up and against five objections says no, you're the guy, I will be with you. So we can conclude Moses is the dude, right? Especially because God just said, when you see Pharaoh, tell him this and tell him this and this is what's gonna happen. So Moses is the dude. Okay, I say that because this next section is what scholars called the most enigmatic uh, scripture passage, the most enigmatic scripture passage in all of Exodus, which is just a really smart person way to say, I don't know, dude. That's what it comes down to. So let's read it. I'll give you what I think is all of their best contributions. And it's funny when you read commentaries on this because they'll be real brief on most of chapter four. There are thousands of pages written about what happens right here. So verse 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What? (laughs) It's fair, right? What's funny is when you look at a bunch of commentaries, what a lot of really smart people will do is they will do chapter four and they'll just conveniently forget that those verses are there and they just move on because what happens next is the Lord goes to Aaron and Aaron meets Moses. So you could take that out and it doesn't feel like you miss anything. The narrative continues just fine, but the Lord does put it in there for a reason. And I don't think you can just ignore it. And it, it creates this tension And there's a tension right there that's uncomfortable that I want to tend to iron out all the ripples and uncomfortable parts of scripture, but I don't think you can do that. The Lord made sure that this story would be here to create some sort of tension for you and I to look at and to glean something from. So here are some of the best ideas I saw that scholars had. One of them was, there's a covenant promise that's made between Abraham and God. And God said, your people will do this and it will be a symbol that you are my people and I am your God. And that's how we'll be known. And so you have Moses who's going to stand before God's people and his own family doesn't obey the promise of that covenant. Maybe Moses feels like, okay, I wanted God's promise to come true, but God didn't show up for me. So I'm not going to follow that covenant promise. Maybe that's it. Another option is the idea of like the lukewarm believer that God would rather you be hot or cold and not lukewarm. So you have Moses who's gonna go to Israel. He's gonna talk the talk. This is how we're supposed to live. These are the things that we're supposed to do. But yet Gershom's gonna be raised in a home where we just don't do that. And that's gonna create dissension and problems and things aren't gonna go well for Gershom or for Moses or for all of Israel. And so maybe the Lord goes, okay, I'm not gonna have a lukewarm leader. I'll get rid of you then. But that doesn't really work because if you look in the Bible, you have a guy named Eli. Eli is a priest. He's representing God to God's people. Eli has failed so miserably with his kids that they are predators outside the temple. And that when women come to sacrifice to the Lord, they have sex with them. And then you have someone like David, who the messianic line comes through David. How David represents himself to God's people is pretty important. But David sees a beautiful woman, decides, I have to have her. He does. And then she gets pregnant. And to cover it up, he makes sure that her husband dies in a military accident so that it can all be hidden. But Yahweh doesn't show up and hold Eli down. Yahweh doesn't show up and hold David down. But this happens with Moses. It's, it's weird. This is all I know after looking at it is this isn't the normal thing that happens. Doesn't happen with Eli, doesn't happen with David, doesn't happen in a lot of other places. But for whatever reason, Moses needed this. And maybe for you and me, there's stuff that we're going through and we go, man, I don't know why this has happened. This is weird. This is uncomfortable. I don't like this. This is making me sweat in front of a bunch of people but maybe we need this to be the person that God needs us to be. Moses wasn't going to do what God needed him to do. I know that there's some people here who they were going to live their life. They were going to do their thing, but then all of a sudden they were confronted with death. God confronted them with death and they went, okay, fine. God, I'll submit. Maybe that's what hap- That's what happens here with Moses. I think whatever it was, Moses needed this. Don't know why it's not prescriptive it's not this is the way it always happens I think it's descriptive this is what happened Moses needed it and through it he became the person that God needed him to be an interesting thing to note is Zipporah is the one who saves Moses again in the book of Exodus God has elevated a woman someone who normally in this culture really wouldn't have been elevated or given a lot of status or esteem again the hero is a woman She did the right thing where the man failed. She did the right thing where the man wasn't gonna come through. It's very, very interesting. Verse um, 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all of the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So God did the extraordinary with the ordinary guy who didn't even want to be involved. He has, and I think it shows God has a plan and he's working it and he's getting it through. He's getting it done. And God is able to use our weaknesses, our insecurities, all the places we fall short for his strength, for his glory. But you might be sitting here and you go, well, great, but I'm still insecure and I've got big problems and I, I am incapable. I'm, I'm thinking about the things that God has called me to do. And I, man, I just can't do it. And all of my problems, I've got a really long list. I struggle with doubt. I struggle with being weak. I struggle with no one thinking about me. No one cares about my opinion. I've got all these problems and God isn't showing up in a bush to me. Any time in my life that something has spontaneously combusted, it hasn't led to good things. You know, not good things. The Lord hasn't spoken out of it and given me a plan. God hasn't shown up and said, hey, you're a mighty man of valor in my weakness. So what am I gonna do? Well, here's the thing that we have that Moses doesn't have. We have access 24 seven to the living and active word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we can take all of our problems, we can take all of our qualities, all of our things where we go I am struggling with this, I don't like this I'm not capable, I'm insecure all of these things and we can test it against scripture and see okay what does God have to say about this? So like I'm insecure there's someone in my life that I am supposed to talk to there's someone in my life that God has brought into my life that I would share the Lord Jesus with them and I just don't have the right words I do not have the right words to get across. I'm incapable of coming up with what I should say to this person. But what does the Lord have to say about that? What would Jesus say about that? Well, in Luke and in Acts, what he says is don't worry about the words. In the moment, I'll give them to you. I will provide you for those words. That's not for you to worry about. It reminds me of the, but I will be with you. Well, then what about if it feels like I'm under attack all of the time and I'm stressed and I'm anxious and there's all this stuff going on. It just feels like chaos, Well, one of our uh, Bible verses that we do with the kids is Proverbs where it says the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe that we're supposed to draw near to the name of the Lord when we're under attack and know that there's safety and security in the arms of God. But how can you know that God won't abandon you? That's something that Moses asked. How do I know you're not gonna leave me be? How do I really know who you are? Will our God abandon us? Well, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, I'm not leaving you all alone. I'm going to send you the helper. It's the Holy Spirit. And it's literally God indwelling in you. So if God was with Gideon, leading 300 people against all the Midianites, and if God is with Moses and his mouth and with all that he does, how much more is God with you and me when he literally indwells in us? That it's God living in us and through us and for us. So much more. So you have that idea of Aristotle's unmoved mover where you have this God who's outside of everything, right? He's self-contained. He's self-sustained. Nothing has caused him. He's he's not conditional. There's no conditions that lead to him. He just is, but he's disinterested. He's disengaged and he's incapable of being involved in the lives of people. Yahweh has the qualities of, yeah, he is self-sufficient. He's self contained sustained, but he's desperate to be involved with the lives of his people. What the Bible tells us about God is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they lived together in unity and and perfection and harmony for all of eternity. They didn't need anything. They didn't need you. They didn't need me. There was nothing that they were lacking. But they decided, we're gonna create a world and our people will be in it and we'll be their God and we'll be able to have this perfect relationship. We'll share this perfection and harmony with people and then people rebelled like right off the bat and instantly sinned and instantly said I don't want you to be in charge of me I'll be in charge of myself and God could have gone okay then I don't want you either God could have just gone distant and said I won't be a part of it God could have come down with judgment and shut the whole thing down but instead God goes okay I'll make a plan then I'll make this right I'll make a way And and right from the get-go, and as we see through the book of Exodus, there are these hints of Messiah. Moses is pointing towards a greater than Moses. Gideon is pointing towards a greater than Gideon. And with this idea of Messiah, there were certain qualifications that kind of became associated with him. So that when Jesus was born, the main idea on the stage is that God is sending this king. He'll be the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. So where does that guy come from? Well, he comes from a a really good family. He'll be born in a palace. He'll be given all of the best educational options. He'll be a military leader, have great administrative ability. He'll come with the sword and he'll destroy all of the opponents of Israel. That's what everyone believed. That's the qualifications of God's chosen Messiah, what everyone wanted. But that's not what they got. What they got was God chose to be born through a family had really bad reputation, who'd had no money, was very impoverished, who didn't get a very good education. He went to trade school. Nothing wrong with trade school. He became a carpenter. And then Jesus went around doing signs. Jesus goes around doing signs that people might believe and talking about the kingdom of God that they might be forgiven. But the problem is, is people didn't believe Jesus's signs. And then ultimately what happened, you know, Where Moses is held down because of his disobedience, Jesus gets held down because of his obedience. And Jesus is killed. Where Moses is threatened to be killed, Jesus is killed, but not because Jesus needed it, but because you and I needed it. Where our God is so desperately and intimately involved with you and me that he would meet us in our weakness to make a way for us out. But why? Why would God do that? I think the reason is seen right here, and it's also echoed in Philippians 2. The last verse of Exodus chapter four says, and the people believed when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and he had seen their affliction, and then they bowed their heads in worship. When we see Jesus and we see what our God had faced every temptation, our God has gone through everything you and I have felt. He's felt Insecurity. He's felt helpless. He's felt in places where it seems like God is nowhere to be seen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God has experienced and understood exactly where we're at. And he experienced that affliction. What Philippians 2 says is he humbled himself to the point of a a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. And the reason why is so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The father, we serve a God who has not abandoned us. He's not become distant and a God who has delivered us. Amen. Amen. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you're a God who can be trusted and that the only qualifications that there are now is that we need to be sinners who recognize their need for a savior and then to call out and to trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and know that we will be saved, that you do not abandon us, that you do not forsake us, that you have a plan for us, that you know exactly what we need. And just like with Gideon, where you show up and you say, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. When you look at us, you don't see us right now in our brokenness and in our hurting and in our frustration and in our loneliness, but you see us for everything that we have to be. You see us for the fullest of potential of who we are in you, in Christ. So Jesus, I pray this week we'd be empowered people knowing that the God of the universe who set everything into motion has a plan for us. He knows us, he sees us, and he remembers us, and he will do extraordinary things with the ordinary. It's in your name we pray, amen.